She's a very lovely lady. I just met her last night, and it's been such a pleasure speaking with her and uh, getting to know her. I think you'll find her just as lovely as I do. Welcome, Rinda. Hello, everyone. I'm Rinda. I'm a grateful and relentless Al-Anon. <laughs> and I have to tell you, too, I am a huge football fan, and I like football of all sorts, high school football, college football, pro football. But tonight, what I want to talk to you about is a pro football team, the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, Michael Crabtree went out there from Texas Tech, my alma mater. Thank you very much. Um, a couple of years back, and he wasn't all that great in the beginning. He's doing a lot better now. But they made the playoffs for the first time a couple of years ago, and they had had a long, dry spell. And in their huddle, what they got together and said right before they were getting ready to go on into the playoffs was, who's got it better than us? And they all said, nobody. So I want to ask you tonight, who's got it better than us? Nobody. Right. Exactly right. And I want you to remember that. Because you know something? We're special people. We are very special people. There are so many out there that suffer tonight. There are so many tears being cried tonight. So much anger from those who don't have the gift of this program. And as we, many other speakers have said and have said in other meetings today, it's not because they don't need it. It's because they don't want it. So um, nobody has it better than us. Nobody has it better than me tonight. I'm so humbled to be asked to do this. I feel so fortunate. I thank you so much and the committee and especially Lisa and David who have hauled us around every time we said we wanted something different to eat. Off they took us. So thank you very much. Um, I want to jump right into why I'm qualified to be here. And, you know, when I got here, I didn't even feel like I deserved to have a chair in these rooms. And I was told by people who had been here a long time that I earned my chair in this room. And I want to assure you, you have earned your chair in this room. You deserve to be here. You are good enough and you are worthwhile enough to be here. Um, Kind of the before and after. What happened to me, a, a great example of what I was like. I was married to my second person whose drinking bothered me. I have never had the privilege to be married to anybody, and I have been married a few times. Uh, On my third one now. But the two I married prior to this uh, man I'm married to today, who, believe me, is everything I ever wanted and more than I deserve. Um, The two whose drinking bothered me. So here we are. This is the second one. We get a call from the attorney. My stepson, who is 13, has decided he does not appreciate that we, um, once he was kicked out of his school that he was in, or basically they told us he was about to kick him out, we put him into a private school that we really could not afford. I got myself elected as head of the PTA. I have no children of my own. So here I am, head of the PTA, very important. Um, He's in this expensive school. I quit my job. I had a business, and instead of admitting that I was tired and I didn't want to do that business anymore, I did it for the (gasps) sake of the family. (laughs) 
That's the Al-Anon salute. Those of you it. So um, I've done all this for the sake of the family, and the attorney calls and says, you know, your stepson doesn't want to live with you anymore. He says y'all are mean and cruel because we had rules at our house. Now, this is, you know, before the program, but we did have some rules. So I am very angry at this call. Here's my response. Let's get in the car, say to my husband, let's get in the car and go over there to confront his mother and the child about what's going on. So we jump in the car. Of course, the person who's drinking bothers me. He has to have a six-pack for the ride over. I'm <laughs> preparing himself. I can just ride on rage. We race across I-20 over, over to Arlington. We get to the house, irk to a stop in the front. I jump out, race into the house. Did you hear me knock at the door? <laughs> this would be called criminal trespassing. Go into the house. The mother is there. She grabs the phone up and calls the police. I'm cursing at her and telling her all kinds of things and wanting to know where is that ungrateful brat. He's next door. I go out of the house that I walked into next door. Do I know these people? No. Into the house again. Two criminal trespassing. Into the house. Where's the kid? He's upstairs. Go up the stairs. To confront him, he's playing air guitar. <laughs> what are you doing? You have ruined our lives. You have cost us all this money. Blah, blah, blah. He just stands there kind of stunned. And about that time, I realize maybe it's not a good idea to be here. <laughs> the alcoholic has not even followed me into the second house. He's already figured that out. He's out in the getaway car. <laughs> out of the house. Get in the car and say, I think we should leave. <laughs> and so we do. Thousands and thousands of dollars later to pay the criminal charges, the tickets, to have it expunged from my good name that I'm so worried about. Does the alcoholic care? No, he does not. He works for a huge defense company in Fort Worth and is at a high security level. When I say to him, don't you think we need to spend the $1,000 to get this expunged from your record? Here's what he says. Don't give a shit. <laughs> did I kick? I mean, all these things I did. Let me tell you what I would do today. First of all, highly unlikely I would have married this man. <laughs> highly unlikely. Because today, I have a sponsor who says to me things like, run. That's what she says, often. That's, I'll present a scenario to her, and that's what she'll say. Number one, run. Okay. The first thing that would have happened in real life, if I were living this today, I would have called her. I wouldn't have left the premises. I've been told I do nothing that's of a major decision without talking to her or somebody else. But I picked up the phone, Rosemary... Um, this attorney has called, and I am very, very upset about this. She would say, well, honey, I think we need to pray about it. I think we need to spend some time about this, and you sound very upset. Have you eaten today? Are we not the only people in the world who, if somebody's holding a gun to their head, we say, did you eat some breakfast? <laughs> This is my life. This is what the, this is the level I was at. Then she would have said, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to go anywhere. 
Let's go to a meeting tonight. We're going to pray about it. We're going to sleep on it. And we're going to see what happens. Now, how much would that have cost me? Zero. Do you see the difference? The, the way that my life was? And that's kind of graphic, but every bit of it is true. Um, you know, those are the kinds of decisions I made before I got here. I grew up in a home. My parents did not drink. They hated each other. They did not like each other, apparently from day one. I'm not really sure. I know that um, they got married because they had to. Um, But I think probably for about six months they might have put up with one another. After that, just hated each other. Um, Never, I never heard I love you growing up. I never heard you're pretty. I did get a pat on the head for good grades, which was how I tried to excel. Um, so what I heard was a lot of screaming and hollering. There wasn't any violence in my home, but I learned a tremendous amount of sarcasm and I learned absolutely nothing about having, how to have an intimate relationship with anyone. So for those of you out there who are thinking that you're staying together for your children, for the sake of your children, let me tell you a couple who were together for 19 years. That's how long my parents were married. What I and my brothers learned was how to scream and yell at each other, how to say horribly ugly things to one another, how to never say I'm sorry, because we had no background for that. So you wonder why we are all three in pretty dysfunctional families. I mean, so if you're, again, if you're staying together for the kids, that ain't going to work too well. Okay, so the first... um, alcoholic that I married. I was at Texas Tech, which I've already mentioned, and I like to bring it up a lot, so get used to it. Um, I've already brought it up to Fort David numerous times, and I like LSU too, okay? But anyway, yeah, go Tigers. So I'm out at Texas Tech, and uh, I had followed my high school sweetheart out there, and of course, once I got onto that campus with 25,000 students, I quickly dumped him. Because I never really had that much attention from anybody. So I I just had a great time at Tech. But there I was in my senior year, and it was time to graduate, and I wasn't engaged or anything. And so it was time for me to get married. So what did I (laughs) I didn't really like the idea of going to Houston by myself. So I did actually go to Houston by myself where I had a job. And... um, it was lonely, and it was scary, and I decided to marry a guy that I kind of knew. <laughs> and mainly the thing I knew about him was he was very, very smart because he was in my same major. So I knew that it was very easy for him to make good grades, and I had to study a lot. And so I thought he could give me the life that I deserve, which, of course, is all about me. So he would need to provide things for me, and I would need to have a house with a little picket fence and all those things. And, 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 you know, the shame of it is today that I have to admit to you that he loved me very much and truly, and I did not return those feelings. I mainly was a scared little girl who didn't know how to take care of myself at 20 years old, and the answer to me was to get married. Now, the good thing would have been if I had actually realized this, say, six months in, when I knew good and well that this was a big mistake, and let that man go on with his life. But no, I was very concerned about my reputation. Now I'm 20 years old in Houston. Who gives a crap about me? Like, they're worried about me. I'm somebody famous? No. 
I'm basically kind of a little lower middle class girl from Cal Allen, Texas. This is not a big deal. I decide I need to stay married for five years because that would like look good on my resume or something. <laughs> it's just amazing to me how I made these decisions. So at five years, January the 1st, I filed for divorce. Now, <laughs> I, nothing but, you know, persistent. So, and I had also at that time decided, well, I was a very good little girl, which I was when I was at Tech. Now, I drank some, but not to excess. It never did that much for me. But um, I had been a very good little girl, not promiscuous at all. And um, as soon as um, I decided I want to be married to him, that last year I decided I would experiment with affairs. And, you know, that was kind of fun. It was a little exciting. Um, but, you know, the whole self-esteem thing really starts to go down with that. So even if they have a lot of money in a Mercedes, it really kind of makes you feel like one of those people who get paid for sex. It's not a good thing. Except I really, you know, sleeping around a whole lot and not getting paid for it is kind of questionable, too. (laughs) No, what am I thinking? So we got a divorce. And um, I went on to sleep with a few other hundred people. But I do, (laughs) on the second marriage... A guy I found, of course, where we all find lovely people at a bar. <laughs> Dancing with him, he had a son, and this is what he told me. No red flags here, y'all. I'm sure you're not going to catch on to this. I'm on a liquid diet. <laughs> I have lost, I think it was like 30 pounds. I have lost 30 pounds, and the way I have done it is I drink like two six-packs every night for dinner. That's what I do, and I have lost all this weight. And I hate my ex-wife, and my son um, is not doing well. He was, I think, in kindergarten or something. He was not, how did, you know, you're not doing well in kindergarten? Is that a bad flag? Is that a red flag? And he's drinking all, here's my thinking. He needs help. He needs me. I can straighten this mess out. I can do this. I'm smart, and I have a smart mouth, and I can handle that ex-wife. And that kid is only going to be here every other weekend. I'm not going to really see him all that much. (laughs) Right. So we married him, and within a very short period of time, the whole situation just began to escalate. He began to drink more and more. I began to work on his potential. (laughs) Had a lot of potential. If I could just get him to wear the right clothes, I began to write out scripts for him to read off to the ex-wife. No, you didn't. You forgot this line. Tell her this. Tell her this. So, had that under control. I attended Fathers for Equal Rights meetings. Do I look like a father? It's not a father. You know, it was frightening to those people when I showed up. What are you doing here? I said, well, he's out of town. I'm here to get his equal rights. <laughs> well, you know, and then somehow, I mean, those people are crazy, too. Don't go to, I don't think they have those meetings anymore. Don't go. So, um, now, I did have some improvement in my life, though. With this husband, I decided that I needed to be faithful, and I did love this guy. I really and truly intended to spend the rest of my life with him. Um, but as things progressed and I got madder and madder and he got madder and madder about everything that I didn't want him to do or did want him to do, our home quickly began to disintegrate into, and I am not proud of this, something that was worse than what I grew up with. 
There was not pushing and shoving in the home I grew up in. There are lots of threats of it, but it didn't happen. There was not throwing things in the home I grew up in. Now, my mother always defended my behavior, which was another problem I had. Um, so the time that I threw a crystal bowl at my second husband, you know, those heavy lead crystal bowl, I threw it at him. And he tried to jump out of the way, but he wasn't quick enough. So it hit him in the knee. And he ended up really being injured. And I remember telling my mother, you know, Mom, things are out of control over here. I'm throwing stuff all the time. And I'm pushing him, and I'm slapping him, and he's pushing me back, and it's not good. It's just not a good thing. And I said, you know, I think he's really hurt his knee. He's probably going to have to have surgery at that bowl I threw at him. And she said, oh, honey, I think he was probably injured before. (laughs) Damn right. Sure he was. I'll buy that. Yeah. So, um, and this was, uh, as things heated up and heated up, we've now been married about seven years. And that was when the incident I described at first happened, where we sped off down the road and got all those tickets and all those things. And I began to think that my prayers at that time, I was praying, um, I was giving God some good orderly direction. I was asking God, and I grew up in a very sweet, kind church. I did not have a mean God, but I had a busy God. God was very busy with the starving children in India. Did not have time for my small time problems. So here was my prayer. I remember this distinctly driving home one day. God, I have a lot of cancer doctors as clients. God, she needs to get pancreatic cancer. You know, it's a slow death. It's not quick. And I can sit beside her bed and say, "Mm, you don't look good. And, you know, basically, this is kind of a death sentence. But I'll be here to take care of everything you've got now that you're gone. I mean, this was this stuff. This was my relationship with God. This is how far I had sunk into, you know, just the abyss that we get into. That our disease takes us to. And by the way, I believe that my disease is just as serious and just as fatal as alcoholism. I'm the only person who goes to bed every night with a person who tried to kill me. You know, I I think when I came into this program, I was suicidal and homicidal. And I was definitely taking him out with me. It was not going to be just me going alone. And I hear that many times as we talk in these rooms. Um. Anyway, I ended up trying an Al-Anon meeting. I had known about Al-Anon because my mother and stepfather had been involved in it, kind of on the fringes. They didn't really, um, they liked the fellowship. I'm not going to say that they did a whole lot more than that. But I knew about it, and I thought, well, I'll go to Al-Anon, and I'll embarrass my husband into going to AA. He could have cared less. He was very glad I was gone and not bothering him. Um, When I went into the, the rooms, The first things I started asking about was, well, I don't really think he's an alcoholic. And what they did is they assured me, Rinda, he doesn't. You don't have to decide that. In fact, we ask you not to label someone an alcoholic. We ask you to just think of this as, does his drinking bother you? And that was a huge freedom to me because that's all I had to decide. Yes, his drinking bothered me. But they also assured me as I talked to them about wanting to possibly get another divorce, the sweet little girl who was about this tall and she was kind of hunched over, she said, well, honey, you can get a divorce. 
you're just going to marry another one like him. (laughs) Oh, thank you. You people are full of hope. (laughs) And she said, and then she explained, she said, you know, you you have a pattern here. Can you pick up on this? You married another one. You come from a home of craziness. You are a crazy person. You're going to marry someone either just like him. And then she stopped and she said, or maybe it'll be worse. Maybe he'll beat the hell out of you. Maybe he'll steal all your money. I was already pouring out lots of money to pay child support, to pay all kinds of things. And then we already talked about legal fees. She said, or maybe he'll kill you. Because, Rinda, you don't choose well. And she was right. I didn't choose well. She advised me that I needed to get help from myself. So I stayed around. I wasn't really all that impressed. I didn't get a sponsor very quickly. I kind of, well, I kind of bounced with a few sponsors. You know, one of them didn't show up at the same meetings that I did, so I kind of dumped her. And then another one talked a lot about Jesus, and I don't want to hear that. And honestly, you know, I don't care if you talk about Jesus, but it's not appropriate in our rooms to talk about religion to people that you're sponsoring. If you get a good relationship going and it works for you with a sponsor, that's fine. But this woman was very religious, so I moved on. And what I found was I looked around the rooms, which is what I should have done in the first place. And probably I wasn't listening. You probably told me to do this. I looked for someone who could smile beyond the pain. And what I saw was a woman who could laugh. And they told me that her son had committed suicide and her husband had committed suicide. And that she had been a dancer down on Harry Hines for a number of years. And I thought, if that woman can laugh and can have the wisdom that she shares in these meetings, maybe she can help me. Maybe she can give me some hope. And I tell you, she saved my life. Rosemary saved my life, and she continues to save my life. Um, She's just, she's wonderful. I've been in the program since 1998, and she's been my sponsor for probably 13 of those years. We kind of took a hiatus when I was starting to date Jeff seriously because Rosemary never has gotten the, um, the whole deal of marriage thing just right. <laughs> but, you know, we gave each other the gift of I talked with other women who had more experience in that area. And that was a wonderful gift for me and for her. You know, she got some relief from me for a while. But she is my sponsor again, and I'm very, very proud of that. Um, Overall, what I found that what I was like was a person who's addicted to adrenaline. That is my disease. I'm addicted to chaos. I'm addicted to stirring things up. One of the things that I used to do, and this is what I learned in my home, I thought this was innocent conversation. When I would, my mother would say to some of you, my dad, you know, ask him something about work, which she knew was going to upset him. And he'd go off. Well, my last ex-husband had a sister named Kim, and she had been in jail a lot. And so one of my favorite things to do was to say, hey, how's Kim doing? And he would start to, you know, kind of get, she's such ungrateful, using all my parents' money, keeping my parents upset. Well, how is your mother? Ah, that was crazy. And he would just go, I mean, on and on and on and on. And I would just sit back and watch it. Look at that. And then when I came in and I talked about this, I mean, he's just crazy. I bring up his sister and he just goes crazy. And Rosemary said, why don't you shut up? Shut up. Quit bringing up his sister. Why would you bring up his sister? 
I am just making conversation. <laughs> All I'm doing is making conversation. She said, well, again, you just need to shut up. You need to not make conversation. And you know what? That has made my, that immediately. I'm talking about within the first three months that I was in Al-Anon. That was a huge improvement in our home life. She also told me, I would say, I'm in the living room and I'm looking at him and he has been drinking. I know he has been drinking. Here's what she said. Leave the room. (laughs) I should be able to sit in the living room and watch a football game with my husband. Your husband drinks too much. Looking at him makes you sick. She was right. Looking at him makes me sick. So I had to learn to leave the room. I'm telling you tonight, if you don't get one other thing out of this talk, leave the room. Don't stay in the room. Leave the room. Go get in the car. Drive off. Go to the grocery store. I grew up with this fantasy of, well, you have to stay and solve things. No, you don't. Things don't get solved that way. Let people's anger die down. Let your own anger die down. And don't stir things up. Um, one of the things that happened that, that really caused, um, well, it was my second bottom. I've been in the, the program for a year and a half, and I hit my real bottom. Is there anybody here from Delhi, Louisiana? Oh, good. Nobody's here. <laughs> I hope you don't know anybody from there. Anyway, it happened in Delhi, Louisiana. I had decided, I've been in the program about a year and a half, my dearest friend was getting married. No, she wasn't getting married. Her daughter was getting married. And what this girl said to me, come and be a part of our family. You are like my sister. I love you. I want you to come. I want you to come to the rehearsal dinner. I want you to come to the luncheon we're having with the bridesmaids. And they're gonna have, the guys are going to go play golf and talk LSU football. And then we're going to have this wonderful wedding. And it, it's all... No holds barred. I mean, we're just, I'm spending a ton of money on this, and I want you to be there and be part of it. So, of course, going to Delhi. It's five hours from Fort Worth. Get in the car. Now, anytime you're traveling with a person who's drinking bothers you, I don't know about y'all, it's always an adventure. Are they going to be okay? How's it going to go? Do they need to get drunk? Do they need to not? I mean, this is a whole mystery. So we get there, and of course, the whole thing went to hell in a handbasket. He gets just blithering drunk. Comes back to the room as we're getting ready for the wedding. Tells me how ugly I look, how ugly my dress is. Accuses me of having an affair with my best friend's husband, who he's been out on the golf course with all day. So, (laughs) making friends. Anyway, um... So I'm, I'm terribly upset. We're, somehow we managed to get through the wedding. It was not pretty. They didn't, no scene was caused with him. Going back the next day, um, and he is yammering at me. And I'm really, really, really mad. I'm driving. He's yammering. And all of a sudden I realized, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him right here. If I had a knife, I would just stick him right now. I could just feel the knife going in. And I heard my sponsor in my head. Get out of the car. 
And this is how the woman talks to me. No kindness, no compassion. Get out of the car. Right now, get out of the car. And out of the blue appears the text, I don't know if you'll ever drive on I-20, but the Texas Huge Visitor Center just appears. And I pulled over in the parking lot and just looked at him and said, I have to get out of the car. I have to get. So I got out of the car. His life was saved. <laughs> Luckily, I did not have a knife. But what I learned from that was was tremendous amount. And one of the main things I learned was that the situation in our home had gotten so dangerous that I needed to leave. Because if I decided, if I stayed, someone was going to get hurt and somebody was going to go to jail. And, you know, more than likely it was going to be me. Because, ladies and gentlemen, they really don't care. When we say, they were awful. You can't imagine at this wedding he ruined it and so I had to kill him. They don't. They say, you're locked up, cuckoo bird. You're gone. There's no sympathy from the law on that. They don't care. So um, I realized that it was much. I needed to leave. I needed to really leave. And and this was a, the really the beginning of my total change in my life in Al-Anon. It was the beginning of my commitment. I heard in the rooms of AA, and it, and I go. What I was taught was you go to two Al-Anon meetings a week at a minimum. You go to one AA open meeting a week, and you go to that. And I heard the other speakers say it too to learn compassion. My sponsor said, and for you, Rinda, with a special case, <laughs> you will learn that you will love people who are total strangers. You will have compassion for total strangers when you have no compassion for a man that you stood in front of an altar and told the world you love for the rest of your life. Because that's where we get. That's what this disease does to us. That's what alcoholism does to the people we love. That's what Alanonism, my disease, does to me. In AA, very often they will say, do what you're told. Stop doing what you're doing. Do what you're told. In Fort Worth, they have something they call Five Alive. Pray in the morning. Go to a meeting every day. Talk to somebody in a program every day. Read the literature every day. Pray every day. I decided my life was such a, a shambles. I mean, when you're looking to go into prison because you want to kill somebody, that's not a good place to be. So I decided I would just do those things. I would just do what they told me to do. And my life began to get better. I did not stay in that marriage. I am not one of those success stories of, oh, and he got sober, and I'm in Al-Anon, and I hate you people who are like this. <laughs> I hate every one of you. <laughs> that didn't happen to me. And I was single for like... You know what, I've been in the program 15 years, so I was single. Jeff and I have been married for eight, like five, whatever that is, the math, five years. Lisa, what's the math on that? Five years? <laughs> She's the accountant. Devin, single for a long time. Hunting around the rooms of AA, Al-Anon, thinking, well, surely I can find somebody who's in recovery. No. Um, instead, what I found was later, you know, Jeff and I, like I said, have been married eight years. Seven years, whatever it is. <laughs> anyway, um, we've been very happy the whole time. He's not in the program, but he respects the program. And he knows that I'll be in this program the rest of my life. Um, anyway, jumped over him. So, um, talked about all that.
sponsorship and unconditional love. That was something I didn't know anything about coming into this program. You know, um, and this watch is upside down, I think. It doesn't have any numbers on it. Well, y'all just tell me. Somebody wave when it gets to be like five till. Okay, thank you. Flash it at me at five till. Okay. Unconditional love, that stepson that I have. Um, he had a bunch of things that we had bought in his room. And when he went back to live at his mom's, I picked up all those things, and this was before the program, and gave them all to his best friend down the street. I was, because if he ever came back over, I wanted to see all his stuff was down there to his best friends. Healthy. Healthy thinking. Um, and my sponsor said, The concept of unconditional love that we have in this program is when we give something, we expect nothing in return. Nothing. Not even a thank you. We give just because we want to give. And she said, if you don't feel that way, Rinda, because I didn't grow up with that. I grew up with, I do something for you, you do something for me, or I hate you. (laughs) So, you know, it's pretty simple. So that's what I was practicing. She said, you know, if you don't want to buy that child anything because you expect something in return, don't buy him anything. Maybe you need to think about why you're buying him stuff. And she was right. And today, let me tell you what, there's a lot of stuff I don't do. I don't buy Christmas presents for all my nieces and nephews. They live in a very wealthy family. I don't want to spend my money that way. And people, oh, you're cheap, Brenda. More for me. Find them anything. I love them. But, you know, their parents are very, very wealthy. I don't feel the least bit guilty about it. So, you know, the unconditional love concept was totally new to me. Um, The other thing that I had was a really bad case of being terminally unique. Y'all have heard about that? As soon as they told, I mean, they heard them. I heard somebody mention that term. I started listening. Really, what did they say? Terminally unique. That means my case is so different from everybody else in the rest of the world that I don't need your help. And so I'm going to die because I'm so different. See what I'm saying? I'm so different that your solution won't work for me. Even though it's proven to work for hundreds of thousands of Al-Anons and AAs all across the world, I'm so different that I'm going to let my disease kill me. So when I began to absorb that concept that I could die, and there were many times I'd rather be dead. In fact, some days I just don't, I'm not all that impressed with being here. But, you know, really and truly, I have a tremendous amount to be thankful for. And I love my husband, you know, and I have great friends. So it's a whole lot better than it used to be. And that whole deal, it just, the whole terminally unique, I just, I love the concept. Um... We talked about the Louisiana trip. The whole thing of the steps. You know, I'm a big book thumper. I grew up on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and our program originated with that. I know Al-Anon doesn't consider it conference-approved literature, but I tell you, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And what I do is I change the words drinking to thinking, because everything applies. I do the fourth step through the big book, the four columns, and it's been very powerful to me. 
I'm not going to tell you that the fourth step changed my life. What changed my life was the ninth step. Of course, a lot of other things have been very dramatically changed along the way. But when I got to my ninth step, there were a lot of people in my life because, again, I have a very sharp tongue. Um, I had heard a lot of people with what I had to say. So what I had to do was find those people. There were especially a couple of girls at Tech who, frankly, I didn't like living with them because they had a lot more money than I did. And I was envious. So I spread a few rumors around that they weren't nice to me and that that's the reason I wanted to move out to a cheaper apartment. I didn't mention the cheaper apartment. I said, I'm moving out because they weren't mean. They were mean to me. None of that was true. They weren't mean at all. And it had bothered me for 20 some years. So what I did, um, I wanted that I wanted that to stop. And I knew that these girls were in a sorority. And if you're looking for anybody in a sorority, let me tell you what you do. Just call up to their New York headquarters. You can find out anything from those people. I'm looking for my Kappa Alpha Theta sister. I wasn't in a sorority. I wasn't anybody's sister. Looking for my sister Lisa and Camille. I think they're in Dallas. Oh, honey, let me give you all the information. Had everything. I mean, immediately. All these years I've been putting it off, trying to get in touch with them. So I called one of them. And incidentally, I had introduced her to her husband. I called to talk to her and make amends for this, and he answered the phone. He remembered the incident. I said, <laughs> apparently he did. I said, hello, um, is Lisa there? No, she's not. Can I leave a message? Well, could you tell her that Rinda, Greg, I'm sure you don't remember me. He said, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> Thanks. So um, she never called me back. What a surprise. But I did have her um, address, and so I wrote her a letter. And the same thing basically happened with the other girl. They didn't answer the phone, but I left a message, and she never called me back either. So I wrote them both letters, apologizing and taking, um, you know, what I was taught was I say I was wrong. I was wrong to have done this. There was no basis in what I said to other people about you. You were always kind to me. There is no reason for me to have done that, and I have no explanation, but it's bothered me all these years. Both of those girls sent me back letters telling me that they, one of them said, I'm sure I did something wrong. Who knows what I did? But thank you for your letter. It was one of the nice, the girl told me it was one of the nicest letters she had ever gotten. The other one sent me a picture of her two sons and her husband. They were as homely as he was. <laughs> I was the one who answered the phone and wasn't very nice to me. But it was a very kind letter. It was, they were both very loving gestures. But that's, the ninth step was a huge um, change in my life. I hunted down a lot of people and made amends. And I'm no longer ashamed of myself. I'm no longer, there is nobody that I walk down the street and am embarrassed and want to turn the other direction so that they don't see me. So if you haven't done your ninth step, which I know in Al-Anon, I work with a lot of people, and they're very reluctant. Most people drop out before they do a ninth step, or they just hang around. But I'm telling you, it's very powerful. Consider what it would how it would change your life to do a ninth step. Um, as far as what it's like today, I go to meetings. We... About three years ago, decided, both my husband and I are from a small town. 
we're two separate small. He's from Georgia, small town. I'm from a South Texas small town. And I had become very restless in Fort Worth. I've been there 27 years and just knew that if I could live in a small town, I would have great happiness. And it, I don't think I really don't think it was a geographic cure because we weren't running from anything. There wasn't anything bad we were leaving. It was just a dream we both talked about and we planned for. And we wanted to live in a charming little town. And this happened. We moved to Jefferson, Texas, which is in the beautiful Piney Woods. It's a very charming, historic town. Um, and within about a year and a half, we were bored out of our minds. <laughs> just, I mean, I hate to tell you this. If this is your dream, you certainly pursue it. Because, you know, you only live once, and that was how I looked at it. We've lived our dream. It was not a good dream. <laughs> Done that. So we're in the process. And, a part of, and the reason I tell you this is because I had no idea what my recovery meant to me. What the people that I came into the program with in Fort Worth had done for me. How the meetings I went to, there were never fewer than, you know, there were always people in the room who had 10, 15, 20, 25 years of recovery. People, I mean, I was nothing there. I go to meetings here, oh man, you are big time, 15 years. No, I'm really not. Really not. I really, these people, if you knew... But I had left those people behind, and I severely underestimated how important they were to me and how important it was. Thank you, God, for those of you who live where you can go to meetings every day. Because I can't. I had to start a meeting across the street from my house, and we do. We built it up, and the people in Shreveport have supported us, come over and help with that. I go to Shreveport at least once a week for a meeting. That's an hour drive for me. But my program is vital to my life. I have no choice. I have to go to at least two meetings a week. And sometimes I get in three. But believe me, I will be very thankful to be back. We're moving back to Dallas within probably the next couple of months. My husband has gotten a job, and I can work wherever. So it's, it's a good thing. But that's what's happened to me now as far as meetings. Um, being married has been um, an adjustment. You wouldn't think so, three times. But it, it has been um, being married to a person who is kind, who has no problem with alcohol. Um, we were at a restaurant we had been dating maybe two or three months, and he already knew about they said, you know, I just kind of skipped over a problem with alcohol. If you drink, we well, have no future. Oh, that's it. So um, we were at a restaurant, and the waiter asked him if he wanted anything to drink and of course I said no and he said no too and I said well you know really you can have something to drink alcohol if you want it I didn't mean it testing him test what are you going to do so and he looked me in the eye and he said you know baby it bothers you when people drink and I don't want to bother you it's not important to me I know it can upset you I don't give a damn if I have another drink in my life. I just want to be with you. What a deal. <laughs> what a deal that I could even be attracted to a man like this. I mean, it's just, and it's always been that way with him. He's constant. He's steady. He's loving. He's responsible. He's not rich. It's about the only problem. <laughs> But you know he earns a good living. 
and he cares for me. He is kind to me. And every day, get this, y'all, I'm 54. I know what I look like. He tells me every day, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. You're so beautiful. Other women are jealous of you. Tell me more. More. More and more. And he is a very handsome man. I know I'm prejudiced. He's very handsome. Um, I talk to people often. God comes to me with skin on. I pray. I meditate. But God comes to me with skin on. I have to hear what you have to say. And this is this is my little personal thing about Al-Anon and meetings. In East Texas, I attended numerous meetings where people felt that they had to read out of the book. Every single person had to read a page of the meditation book. And I want you to think about that if you're doing that at your meetings. Al-Anon meetings are where I hear God speak through you. I hear God speak through Becky. When she shares her story about her son. I hear God speak through David when he says to me, you know, Rinda, I understand your struggle when you moved to East Texas and all of a sudden your home group was gone. I hear through Sharon when she talks about her love for her daughter-in-law who has a gambling problem and how she's dealing with it. I don't hear when you read out of the book. You can read out of the book at home. The book is for a topic. When everybody in the room reads, even if you each spend one minute and there are ten people in that room, there's ten minutes. That's at least two to three people that don't get to talk. And you know something? There have been times I desperately needed to talk. Or I desperately needed to hear what you had to say. I did not grow up on those kind of meetings. And I'm not sure how those meetings have materialized. But please think about that as you're conducting meetings. That's letting God into the room. And are we shutting God out when we do so much reading in these meetings? Okay, I'll get off the soapbox. Okay, um, having fun. I have a lot of fun in my program. A lot of fun. So we celebrate birthdays. We do chips. It's um, Fun is very important to me. The laughter is very important to me. It's a big deal. So if you're not celebrating birthdays in your groups, I really encourage you to. Chips, handing out chips. I I didn't know people didn't do that. It's Get chips. They're on the website. Just look them up. Google Al-Anon chips. Everybody can have a chip on their birthday. It's a a great thing. I carry my chips around in my purse. I mean, it's just a a wonderful way. We need to celebrate more. I'm going to wrap it up here with talking with you all about my experience with God, because I feel like God is so central to this program and how God speaks to me and how God has shown me that she is there. And by the way, I don't have a traditional male God. Um, I can relate to to a guy. I mean, my dad was not the father that I needed him to be. So that whole picture of, of a, a male God didn't work. And I heard a man speaking at an open AA meeting, and this is how he described his God. He said, my God's name is Sam, and he needs to lose 20 pounds, and he wants to quit smoking. <laughs> and that was his God. And I thought, you know, I can have my own God. And my God looks like Eleanor Roosevelt. In fact, her name is Eleanor. She's very sturdy, and she wears sensible shoes. But she's my God. She's only for me. 
And I believe that you each have your own God. I look out in this room and I see 250 gods right there beside each of you. So you have a 24-7 God and I have a 24-7 God. So I don't need to worry about you. you got your own God. And my God is all about me. Steve in a meeting said one time, my God has my picture on her refrigerator. Not yours. Mine. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's just a great... So, um, quick examples. The Vietnam Memorial. I was there with my last ex-husband. And this was before the... No, I was in the program when it happened. I had been in the program about a year because we weren't divorced. So we're at the Vietnam Memorial, and there um, are a lot of names on that memorial. And they are not in alphabetical order. I believe that they're in the order of when the people died. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. And I was very angry at God about what was going on in my life. And I remember just thinking, you know, God, why don't you show me a sign? That you're out there because I, you know, my life is not good. So I'd like to see something. I'd like to maybe see my name on this Vietnam memorial, just to throw it out there and be arrogant with God. <laughs> Smart, huh? Anyway, I walked up to that memorial. It's a very long black wall, and you have to really look at the names and get up close to it to see them. I was about halfway down, and I turned. And looked at eye level, and there was my name. My name. Now, of course, being a skeptical Al-Anon, I immediately thought, there's probably a lot of those names. Because it was my last name at the time, which had a weird kind of spelling. I thought, well, there must be others. And they have actually books there, because it's so hard to find the name that you're looking for that you have to look it up under some codes to find the name on the wall. So I went to that book. There are over 50,000 names on that wall. How many names like mine do you think there are? One. And we think that God doesn't love us enough to show us that he or she is there. Absolutely does. Now the most meaningful thing that has happened to me where God was right there. I was at a Texas Tech football game, <laughs> where, of course, God was. <laughs> and Texas Tech, is the colors are red and black. So I have on all red and black. I mean, I have on a black skirt, and it has red fringe on it, and I have on my black boots, and I have this vest that has little double T's all over it. I mean, I am teched out. I also happen to have another vest that actually plays the fight song. I wasn't wearing that one. This has little double T's all over it. And I had come with another couple. I was single at the time, and, and this had been a big dream for me because after the divorce, I felt like I was never going to get to go to a tech game again. That, you know, here I am single. How in the hell am I going to get to a tech game out to Lubbock? It's not, not going to happen. But it did happen, and it all worked out. So we were there, and Stephanie and Keith um, were there with me. And I looked up, and we were playing Nebraska, and Nebraska's colors are red and white. So there's a sea of red and white and black people. The stadium holds like 56,000. Sea of people. And all of a sudden, I realize I've lost 
Stephanie and Keith. I can't find them. They have the tickets. Here's how my mind works. They've forgotten I'm here. They don't realize that we've gotten separated. They're going to go on to sit down in the seats. I don't have the tickets, so I can't find them. I look stupid in this outfit. No longer is it cute. Now it's weird. I'm going to have to go up to the news thing in the sky. They're going to have to announce over the speaker, there's a girl here sobbing in a weird outfit. Her name is Rinda Gray. Would Stephanie and Keith please come and get her? All this, you know how our minds work. We're fast. So by this time, I'm on the point of tears, hysterical. I'm lost amongst all these red and white and black people. And you know, no further than Claudette is to me right here. Stephanie materialized out of the, cl- out of the crowd. She's wearing red and black, too. <laughs> out of the crowd. And I reached out my hand to her, and she reached out to me. I said, Stephanie, I was lost. I was lost. She said, oh, honey, you weren't lost. We knew where you were all along. We could see you. We were watching you the whole time. You were not lost. Come on, let's go to the game. I want you to know tonight, you are not lost. If you feel that way, we see you. We know exactly where you are. We are here for you. Let's go to the game. Thank you. Oh, my God, another wonderful.